the past few weeks, we've been looking at core beliefs of the Christian faith. These are not a reflection of specifically Baptist belief or denominational beliefs or Catholic versus Protestant beliefs, but those things which for 2,000 years have been widely accepted as foundational to the Christian faith. They've defined Christianity, providing valuable boundaries for knowing what is that true and acceptable faith that Jude 3 says was once and for all entrusted to the saints, which is what we looked at when we started this series. The site attempts to broaden definitions and become more inclusive, to deny, disregard, or teach contrary to these fundamental beliefs has always been considered going outside the bounds of Christianity and become something else, a different gospel that Paul talks about. And for those who say that all that matters is love, I would say that yes, God is love, Scripture says, and Jesus said all the commands are summed up in loving God and loving your neighbor. But love is greater than acceptance or tolerance or open-mindedness. Can you really love someone you don't know? Or an image of someone you have created in your own mind based on what you want them to be like? But loving merely an image of something is idolatry, not love. God wants to be known and loved for who he really is not some image or idol we set up in our hearts based upon our own desires. So how do we know what God is like? We know because he's revealed himself through creation, his people, and most notably through his son, Jesus. And the record of this is contained in God's word, the Bible, or as Psalm 119 says, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light for our path. So in week two, we looked at God's word. Because again, as Psalm 119 says, it's the opening of his word that gives light and gives understanding to the simple. So with the Bible as our foundation and the Apostles' Creed as a guide in weeks 3, 4, and 5, we looked at God himself as he exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As the Creed states, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, who is our Lord, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. But while belief in God, belief in Jesus, and the Spirit may vary widely among different faiths, wars have even been waged over them, there are many people who don't take issues, issue with any of these. Their issue is with the next statements in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the holy, universal, or Christian church and in the communion of the saints. Because the sad reality is the difficulty many have today is not with Jesus, it's not with God, or the idea of the Trinity. It's the church and believers. Why don't we look and act more like what the Bible describes? And to be honest, our history has not always been a noble one. There are plenty of things people can point to in the past to say, that's why I don't believe in the church. Many having given up on it and saying things like the title of the book puts it, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. And then putting a bumper sticker on our car that says, God save me for your followers. 
It would be so much easier to believe in the church if it acted more like it's supposed to, wouldn't it? The saints have always proven to be all too human. But it's confirmation that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we're no different. And therefore, we're all in need of God's saving grace. In a Christianity Today article, David Neff, or editorial, David Neff wrote, of friends who were becoming really discouraged about what they saw going on in their church and other churches, and they asked him, church, who needs it? And he told them, I gave up my faith in the church a long time ago, but I still believe in it. As he put it, our faith is not in the church, because that's idolatry. Our faith is in Christ, who is the head of the church. And even with all its faults and failures, it is still central to what God is doing in the world. For in spite of our sin and our failure, we cannot ignore the tremendous impact on the world of people of faith like a Mother Teresa or a St. Francis or a Dorothy Day of the the tremendous efforts (laughs) of people like William Wilberforce and Martin Luther King Jr. and Desmond Tutu against ending slavery and apartheid, of the untold thousands of people of faith who every year give their money and their time and their talents for hunger and disaster relief, as is happening right now, as they are beginning to gather supplies to send to Haiti and Florida to help people in crisis, of those who regularly volunteer their time to work with inner-city children, substance abuse centers, poverty, hunger relief, so many areas of social need, of those who go to faraway places like Taipei to work with children, or give their time to make food and serve international students at the university, or to visit patients in nearby nursing homes like Ann Pearl, or to regularly pray for those who are hurting. That's the church I believe in. God working through his people in spite of our weaknesses. It was G.K. Chesterton who wrote that it is the very failures of the church that prove its truth, that we live in a fallen world where sin is a reality and all of us are in need of God's grace. And aren't you thankful that you don't have to be perfect to be a part of God's family? That he accepts and calls each of us And even in the midst of our sin and our failures, we don't have to measure up to perfection. Or to quote Philip Yancey, God has entrusted us, flawed human beings, with a gospel so powerful that it sometimes does its greatest work in spite of us. Jesus said, I will build my church. We are his body. He created it. He commissioned it. He gave himself for it. And we cannot claim to love or follow Jesus if we're going to reject his words and his body that he died to make reality. It may be broken and damaged, but it's certain, and it's certainly imperfect, but just as you cannot be born without becoming a part of a family, whether we like it or not, you cannot become a Christian without becoming a part of his family, which is the church. Membership in his body is a basic spiritual fact for those who confess Christ as Lord. It's not an option. There are no only child or orphans within Christianity. 
and as is true of any family, just because we come to Christ doesn't mean we're always going to be nice people, surrounded by nice people, that we're always going to get along, that we don't have a cantankerous uncle in our midst or someone hard to get along with or lose our temper or say things we regret. We're sinners in need of grace, but we're also brothers and sisters in the faith. We are family. You know, I don't know if Stephen Colbert has kept up the tradition of David Letterman, who used to always come up with his list of top ten things. Could be almost anything. Politics, sports, celebrities. Well, someone took some of the most common excuses people give for not going to church and asked, what if they, what would they look like if you applied those same excuses to other things in your life? Like eating. And they came up with their top ten list of reasons people give for not eating. I don't eat anymore because I was forced to eat as a child. (laughs) I don't eat anymore because people who eat all the time are hypocrites. They aren't really hungry. I don't eat anymore because there are so many different kinds of food. I can't decide what I want to eat. I used to eat, but I got bored and I stopped. Well, none of my friends eat with me. I only eat on special occasions like Christmas and Easter. I'll eat when I get older. I don't have time to eat. I don't believe that eating does anybody any good. It's just a crutch. And the number one reason people give, give for not eating anymore is restaurants and grocery stores are only after your money. Silly, yes, but giving up on the church is just as silly as giving up on eating. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He has not and will not give up on it, and we aren't to either. For in spite of its problems, it's still his church filled with people like us who are flawed. And so the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in the holy Christian church. You cannot get around the fact that in Scripture, it's the church, not the individual, which is central to God's plan and work in the world. We are his church, his body, his hands, his eyes, his ears, his people, his family, his bride, his chosen ones, the ones he bought and cleansed with his blood. Jesus died to make us, his body, holy. And no matter how much we may think or want to believe, faith is purely a personal matter, something between me and God, we can, something we can do on our own, in the privacy of our own hearts and homes. Scripturally, the Christian life cannot be lived out in isolation. Churchless Christianity is an oxymoron in God's word. For in the New Testament, there really is no faith apart from his body. But a body is, simply more, is more than simply a collection of parts. Each part works in connection with all the others. Together we form his body. That's the focus of the spiritual life and growth. Together we serve God and get to know him. I believe in the holy Christian church. Christ died for it. He doesn't give up on it. No matter how imperfect we may be, the gates of hell will never prevail against it. You know, among the 59 or so passages in the New Testament that speak about how we are to treat one another, 
Among them are things like meet, continue meeting with one another, build up one another, encourage one another, serve one another, forgive one another, spur one another on to love and good deeds. And the greatest and most repeated command of all is simply to love one another. And how can you do that if you're separated? Which is why, as the next statement puts it in the Apostles' Creed, I also believe in the communion of the saints. It's speaking about the relationships among us. The communion or the fellowship is the same word of the saints among believers. In 1 John 1.7, it even says, if we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, we're going to have communion or fellowship with one another. And while it's true that the church is made up of every believer, there's the assumption that it's through a local fellowship, a particular group of people where you know, are known by name and by faith that your Christian faith will be lived out. Highly regarded leader John Stott once was asked, or once asked, how do you believe in a God that you cannot see? And then he pointed out that Jesus took care of that when he made the invisible God visible. First, or John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God. He's invisible, in other words. But God, his only son, has made him known to us. He went on to say, people then say, that's great, but that was 2,000 years ago. What about now? He's still invisible, and Jesus isn't here today. To which John Stott answered, well, 1 John 4.12 says, again, no one has ever seen God, but if we, speaking of the church, love one another, then God lives in us. That same invisible God who Jesus made visible, he's saying, we make visible today through the communion of the saints. An awesome thought. You and I, in community, make the invisible God visible. I believe, it says, in the community of the saints, the communion of the saints. And communion is about community, which is what the church is to be. People bound together by one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, as Ephesians talks about, offering mutual support and encouragement. No matter what differences we may have culturally or educationally or ethnically or upbringing, Democrat, Republican, politically liberal or conservative, what part of the country we come from, even minor doctrinal differences such as our view on things like baptism or the role of women or church polity or tongues and the like may be important, but they're not grounds for division. In Christ, we are one body. And Paul even pointed out that one of the greatest causes for division in the ancient world, the division between Jew and Gentile, Christ, he said, destroyed that barrier that dividing wall hostility. Whatever differences there may be, we become one in Christ. That's the communion of the saints. There's a unity of faith that supersedes everything else. And it's the church in community and in fellowship that is to be a foreshadowing of the world to come. In his book, Life Sentence, Charles Colson, who was known as President Nixon's hatchet man, who went on to find the Lord in prison as he served for the Watergate scandal, 
wrote about the communion of the saints and how radical it really is by the world standards. In writing, he spoke of a gathering he was a part of in which he said, what a strange collection of people we were. The one-time Nixon loyalist, Charles Colson, a recovered alcoholic and liberal Democratic senator from Iowa, Senator Hughes, a member of the Black Panther Party and avowed Marxist revolutionary out on bail, Eldridge Cleaver, and an ex-Ku Klux Klan terrorist doing 35 years in prison named Tommy Terrence. It's an impossible gathering in the world's eyes, but there we were gathered together for dinner and to pray and to embrace and to weep with one another. That's the community and the communion of the saints where our differences fade to irrelevancy because of what we shared in the Lord. That's what Paul was talking about when he said, you are all, in Galatians 3, sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ, and now there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Colossians 3 He says again, here, in the body of Christ, the communion of the saints, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself, these are all community terms, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, and bear with each other, and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. I believe in the communion of the saints, because it's about relationship. It's not to be mistaken for mere cordiality, or courtesy, or sociability. That's no difference than the Kiwanis, or a neighborhood potluck. It's not specifically Christian, There's something more. An elderly woman once walked into a local church and she was met at the door by a very friendly and helpful usher who helped her up the flight of steps and asked her, where would you like to sit? I'd like to sit in the front row, please, she answered. Quietly, he said, you really don't want to do that. The pastor is really boring. Do you happen to know who I am, she asked. No, I'm the pastor's mother. (laughs) Do you happen to know who I am, ma'am? No. Good. He turned around and left. (laughs) Church should be a place where we are known and where we know one another by name. That's why the, the image of family for me is central to what the church is. Not the reality, what purpose-driven or seeker-sensitive or program-driven or one of any number of other models that are out there today that have great value, but family, because family is where you're known and where you know, where you cannot be anonymous, where you cannot slide in and out without people noticing. You cannot get lost in a crowd where you never see the same person two weeks in a row and then wonder, well, what's wrong with the church when I'm hurting and no one knows? Anonymity is not an option in the communion of the saints. 
Churches take all kinds of shapes and sizes, but ultimately, family is the primary metaphor, I think, in Scripture for God's household. You cannot expect a brother or sister to come alongside of you and bear one another's burdens, provide strength for those who are hurting in difficult times, unless you're aware of them, unless you're willing to be open. Howard Snyder, who is professor of history and theology of mission at Asbury Theological Seminary, pointed out three important elements to Christian community. He said, it's important to note that in all those almost 60 one another passages in the New Testament, almost all of them imply behavior, not attitude. To which he says, the New Testament writers are far less concerned with how believers feel about each other than they are with their actions, how they live together in community and treat one another. Then he said, it also implies a social context. People are in relationship with one another. They don't live in isolation. And then he says, lastly, nearly all of them are imperatives. They're instructions about actual behavior, not abstract spiritual truths to meditate on or talk about just in Bible study. Love one another isn't primarily an attitude. It's something we do and we show. Community is not a commodity. It's not just an experience, something that happens to us. And so, in community, like in any family, someone may disappoint us. They may not live up to our standards. We may sometimes be hurt. There may be abuses at times. There's so much more that goes on in families, and yet we still are family. And it's no more or less than what you and I make it. The communion of the saints is dependent on what we're willing to invest in it. As one writer said, it's hard to imagine a more depressing place than a room with a few hundred people who showed up expecting community to happen to them. It happens when we pursue Christ and his love and work with each other. I think I've read this before several years ago, but it's great from Bill and Gloria Gaither. It said, God has always had a people. A people who believe by faith, who trust and obey his word. A people whose God is the Lord. Many foolish conqueror has made the mistake of thinking that because he had forced the church of Jesus Christ out of sight, he had stilled its voice and snuffed out its life. But God has always had a people. He has always had a people who believe, that believe his word. A people whose God is the Lord. The powerful current of a rushing river is not diminished because it's forced to flow underground. The purest water is the stream that bursts crystal clear into the sunlight after it has forced its way through solid rock. There have been charlatans like Simon the Magician who sought to barter on the open market that power which cannot be bought or sold. But God has always had a people, men and women who could not be bought and who were beyond purchase. God has always had a people, people who believe by faith. There have been times of affluence and prosperity when the church's message has been diluted into oblivion by those who sought to make it socially attractive, neatly organized, and financially profitable. It has been gold-plated, draped in purple, and encrusted with jewels. It has been misrepresented, ridiculed, lauded, and scorned. These followers of Jesus Christ have been accorded 
according to the whim of the times, elevated as sacred leaders and martyred as heretics. Yet through it all, there marches on that powerful army of the meek, God's chosen people who cannot be bought, flattered, murdered, or stilled. On through the ages they march, God has always had a people, the church, God's church triumphant. God has always had a people, a people who believe by faith, who trust and believe in his word, a people whose God is the Lord. God has always, always had a people. And while many may be skeptical and seem to have given up on it, as the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in the holy Christian church and the communion of the saints. And as a final thought, let me close with this. For safety's sake, don't ride in automobiles because they cause 20% of all fatal accidents. Do not stay at home because 17% of all accidents, accidents occur in the home. Don't walk on the streets or sidewalks because 14% of all accidents happen to pedestrians. Certainly don't travel by air, rail, or water. 16% of all accidents happen there. Only 0.001% of all deaths occur in worship services at church. And these are related to previous physical disorders. Therefore, the safest place for you to be at any time is in church. Bible study is safe too, and the percentage there is even left. So go to church. It may save your life. Will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you that you have given us your body to be a part of, that you make yourself known, not just in the pages of your word, but through the reality of your people, learning to live together in community. For even as the Old Testament said how good and precious it is when your people dwell together in unity. Make us one, Lord, in you, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Would you all please stand for a hymn of commitment and invitation? And if there is some decision you need to make, perhaps you would like to know who this God is that loves you enough to send Jesus or perhaps it's to unite with us as a congregation, or it's simply to ask for prayer. We invite you to come to pray with you here at the front as we stand and sing together.